I hope you're excited about studying Zechariah, just to help spark your enthusiasm. I'll point out that the great 4th century uh, theologian Jerome called this book the most obscure book in the Old Testament. So why are we going to study Zechariah? Well, it's not because I'm a big fan of obscurity. The word obscure means unclear, vague, or incomprehensible. But I believe with all my heart that this book is none of those things when it comes to that which really matters most to God and to us. As in the book of Daniel and in the Revelation to John, there are images presented in the visions and oracles of Zechariah that are difficult to understand, perhaps even impossible for us to understand right now. And it's worthwhile to study and to ponder all of those things that we'll encounter. But I don't intend to spend a lot of time trying to pin down details that godly men have debated for centuries without coming to a convincing resolution. Because I consider those things to be obscure for very good reasons. Reasons that God will make clear to us later, but not now. I'm convinced that all of the important and transforming things that God wanted Judah to know when they received these words from the prophet Zechariah and all that he wants us to know today are very well supported by the wealth of revelation that God had already provided to his people. He has a whole lot to say about the even the images and visions about the motifs and themes that he, that he raises in this book in other books, particularly in the, the major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah. And so in the final analysis, I think the things that matter most in this book are not all that hard to sort out. Uh, and I believe that's true of all of Scripture. And they are important things indeed. The exhortations and warnings and magnificent promises that God proclaimed to the people of Jerusalem and Judah in these chapters are as relevant and they are as worldview-defining today as they were when they were first written. This book is about us becoming really good stagehands. You know what a stagehand is? It's the person that sets things up before the show. This book is about getting things ready for the one who's coming. In John chapter 15, Jesus was speaking to a small group of faithful disciples. In fact, Judas had already left the room, and so he was talking to the 11 true disciples. In verses 14 and 15, he said to them, You are my friends if you do what I command you. And he just got through saying, Greater love has no, one, no man than, this, than that he lay down his life for his friends. Verse 15, he says, No longer do I call you slaves. For the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. The book of Zechariah is about what our master is doing. It's about his agenda. It's about his plan to judge and redeem and restore and ultimately to make all things new. In the near-term view... 
for the audience who first received it. It is about God's call to the returned exiles of Judah who came back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple because God declared that he was once again going to come and dwell in their midst in that temple that they had started to rebuild 16 years earlier but had not finished. It's about how they were to turn their hearts and their lives back to him in order to ready themselves for his return to their midst. But in the longer view, it's about how things are going to shake out when God wraps up all of history at the return of his beloved son. And it's about his call to us as his covenant people to make ourselves and others ready for his return. Does that sound relevant to you? I want to set the stage a little bit with some history. Did all of you get or get access to one of these? Make a really big paper airplane later. I know it's it's legal size, so it's hard to carry around, but I couldn't fit it on small paper. I'm going to start at the beginning of that and kind of walk through it. And I want to first point out that that we in the West, in the industrialized West, we love very precise timelines. We like very specific dates. Please don't be married to the dates on this timeline. There was no Anno Domini, A.D., year of our Lord, when these things were written. There was no B.C. when these things were written. There was just the second year of Darius or the sixth year of Cyrus. And so when you go back and study this stuff, you find lots of little C-A dots before the, the dates, and that's from the Latin circa, which means around. And in other words, the dates are rough. Okay, so uh, you're going to see, those of you who are the biblical historians are going to see some dates here that you might not exactly agree with, but they'll be close. First, Somewhere in the vicinity, just actually a little bit before 1000 B.C., Israel said that they wanted a king, 1 Samuel 8. They wanted a king like the kings of all the nations around them because for hundreds of years they didn't have one. And they didn't care for that. And God made it clear to Samuel and to them that they weren't rejecting Samuel the judge from ruling over them. They were rejecting God from ruling over them. But he condescended and he said, okay, I'll give you the king. And the first king he gave them was Saul. And Saul was a mess. Saul talked good talk, but when it came down to actually acting on the basis of what God had declared, he couldn't seem to get it together. And so God raised up a boy named David the youngest and smallest of his brothers. And he called him out and he anointed him and said, you will be my king. And then when he made him king, he gave him a covenant in 2 Samuel 7. And that covenant promised David that there would be no end to his throne, to his dynasty. David's son Solomon reigned over Israel after after David. And it was only during the time of David and Solomon that the kingdom was united. That was it. As soon as the generation after Solomon arose, the kingdom was split in two. 
And it was split between the ten northern tribes called Israel and the, and the two and portions southern tribes called Judah. The northern tribes are also referred to sometimes as Ephraim, which was one of the prominent tribes in the north. The northern tribes, Israel, uh, they had mostly wicked, awful kings. The southern tribes had some good kings and some like Manasseh that were even worse than the ones in Israel, or at least as bad. You'll find all of that history, of course, in 1 Samuel all the way through 2 Chronicles. Around 734 B.C., a nation arose to great prominence in the region, and that nation was Assyria. And Assyria set about taking the northern tribes, taking Israel into captivity. And that took about 20 years. There were several uh, uh, offensives against Israel, and there were several times when Israelites were taken away into captivity until they were pretty much all gone, except the poorest of the poor that were left in the land. First um, Chronicles 5, 2 Kings 17 and 18 talk about those uh, iterations of exile. Now, I say on the chart, Israel exile in Assyria began during that 20-year period, and the reason I say it began is because it really didn't end. They were taken away into captivity and they didn't come back to the land. I've got this chart. You can't really, it's too small to really make out, but if someone wants to get access to that, I can get it to them electronically or on paper. It's a genealogy of the kings in Israel and Judah, and that shows the transitions of power. All right. About 400 years after David and Solomon, another great powerful nation arose in the region, and that nation was Babylon, and its king was Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar then set out to conquer and take into exile the remaining tribes in the south, which was Judah. He took King Jehoiakim, who was the son of Josiah, into captivity. Then Jehoiakim's son Jehoiakim, by the way, who's also known as Kaniah or Jeconiah in different passages. They were taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar. And then Nebuchadnezzar appointed Zedekiah. And now we're getting into the period of time that starts to be very relevant to what we're talking about in this book. Nebuchadnezzar appointed Zedekiah, who was Jehoiakim's brother, Josiah's son. He appointed him to be a figurehead king in Judah and Jerusalem. Zedekiah's task was to do Nebuchadnezzar's bidding. But Zedekiah was a renegade. And so he actually decided to oppose Nebuchadnezzar and to try to reestablish Judah. But he didn't do it from godly motives. In fact, he rejected God and he promoted idolatry and he drew Judah away from the worship of the true God. And so during his 11-year reign in Judah, God kept sending prophets to him who told him to submit to Nebuchadnezzar because the fact that Nebuchadnezzar was ruling over Judah was God's doing and not man's, just as had been the case with Assyria and Israel before. But Zedekiah persisted in his rebellion. And so In about 589 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to Jerusalem in earnest. And 
just to make sure that he could establish the shock and awe necessary to get the job done. He hired the, the ruthless mercenary army of the Chaldeans to spearhead that invasion. And these guys were hardened warriors. And they came up against the city of Jerusalem, and for 18 months they besieged that city while all supply of food and water and, and other supplies was completely cut off. Can you imagine, can you imagine 18 months with no 18-wheelers moving? Nothing flowing in or out. 18 months. Read Deuteronomy 29 and 30 and you'll see prophesied long before the event what was going to happen in the city of Jerusalem because of Israel's, because of Judah's disobedience to God. In 587, Jerusalem fell to Nebuchadnezzar. 2 Kings 25, Jeremiah 39, and Jeremiah 52 lay out that story. And then about, uh, and so the people were taken away into exile. By the way, just backing up a little bit, if you go to the, go back to the beginning of that chart, that page, around 600 to 607, that was the first batch of Judahites that were pulled away into captivity. And probably in that first batch was Daniel and then his three friends that are spoken of in the, in the book of Daniel and were renamed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were the, the Jewish names. Anyway, too much detail, right? Okay, so they were taken away early. There were several, again, just like with Assyria, there were several times when the, the Judahites were, were hauled off into exile. But when Jerusalem fell, that was, that was it. That was the end of, of Judah. Now, Nebuchadnezzar left the poorest of the poor in the land, but not very many. About 50 years later, Cyrus, king of Persia, who had, who had conquered Babylon, made a decree, 538 B.C., and that decree was that the exiles from Judah who were in Persia got to go back to Jerusalem. And they were to go back and they were to rebuild the temple. And he said that he would lend them his support. Zerubbabel was designated as the governor of Judah. And Joshua was de designated as Judah's high priest. And so they came back with a group of exiles, not all of them, and they set about rebuilding the temple. And they spent the first couple of years gathering materials, some of which Cyrus contributed. And then they laid the foundation stone. They laid the foundation in 536 B.C., so about two years later. And there was great rejoicing. But then things came to a screeching halt because the people of the land ruthlessly opposed the rebuilding of the temple. And the, and the people of Judah became terrified, and they stopped. They stopped building. Now, that period from 607, roughly 607 to 538, marks 70 years of exile for Judah. And by the way, many of you know a verse, Jeremiah 29, 11. Some of you can quote it. It says, 
For I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord, plans for well-being and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. How many of you know the verse that came just before it? Verse 10 is where Jeremiah says, before God does that, you're going to spend 70 years in captivity. 70 years. And when he made that declaration, it was the fourth year of Zedekiah. So it was the beginning of the exiles. So Israel, Judah knew, Judah knew very early on that this was not going to be a short-term proposition. And if there was a false prophet named Hananiah who came and told in that fourth year, he told Judah that he had word from God that Nebuchadnezzar's yoke would be broken in three years and they would be free to come back home. And then Jeremiah, God appointed Jeremiah to say, no, not a chance. It's going to be 70 years and you are called to submit to this judgment from God. Fast forward 16 years to 520. Darius, king of Persia, in his second year, and before Darius does anything, first Haggai is appointed by God, and Haggai delivers a word from God that tells Zerubbabel and Joshua to start building again, to resume the building of the temple. And so they immediately start working on that, and then Darius, the king, discovers the decree of Cyrus from almost 20 years earlier. And he says, okay, I'm going to go with that precedent and I'm going to support the rebuilding of the temple. And so he tells them, start building and I will, I will ensure that you are protected. And he gave a very, very strict decree that said if anybody opposed them, they would be on pain of death and he would enforce it. So now they didn't have the opposition that they had before and they started rebuilding. In 515, just five years later, the temple was completed. And during that time, Haggai and Zechariah were the two prophets that God appointed to be his, his voice in Judah. That's the setting for the book of Zechariah. And if that's too academic and bored you a little bit, well, it, it, things will get, I guarantee you, they'll get exciting as we start <laughs> moving through the book. But I'm, I'm a third-generation Texan, and the, the first rule of biblical hermeneutics in Texas is if you ain't got context, you ain't got nothing. And by the way, just a little bit further in the, in the historical flow, the last column there, uh, just so you can know how some, some of the other books fit in, about 473 was the reign of Xerxes, and that was when the events recorded in Esther occurred. And then after him was Artaxerxes, and he was the one who gave the decree to rebuild the walls of the city of Jerusalem, and that was where the events recorded in Nehemiah f fall into place. And so then there was a there was another return. There were multiple returns because Judah, when they were given permission to go back, they didn't all come back. And that's that in itself is an amazing story. All right, so that's the history. Now. Why, again, are we studying this book? Well, the book covers many of the same themes as Revelation, which came much later, but it does so with a narrower scope. It doesn't work through three sets of seven judgments. It doesn't talk about the beast and the false prophet and the world, world economy uh, that will precede the coming of Messiah. 
It focuses on his coming and on the ramifications to his people of his imminent return. Now, again, there's a short-term and a long-term view. In the short-term view, it focuses on God's command to the people, to the the returned exiles, to rebuild the temple to prepare for his presence to take up residence in the temple, just as he had in the tabernacle and in the temple of Solomon before. But there can be no question, as you study through this book, that the ultimate fulfillment is Messiah, Jesus Christ. It's more eschatological than any of the other minor prophets, meaning it looks ahead, not just at what's going on presently or what's about to happen in the near term. And I would assert that it is more clearly and more consistently messianic than any of the other minor prophets, at least in terms of the the uh, the apparent, the, the clear testimony of this prophet. And this little book is a lightning rod when it comes to the unity of Scripture because it brings together themes that are introduced in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and it ties them to themes that are presented in Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible. And it pulls in themes and motifs and promises and warnings that are presented throughout all of the prophets and even the narrative literature. It brings Scripture together in an amazing way. And I love, I love to dig into books in the Bible that show the unity of God's Word around Messiah. Is this book relevant to you today? (laughs) Well, what's the book about? That'll tell you something of its relevance. It's about God's promise of what's coming about what he's going to do. It's about his promise that he's coming back. Who's coming back? Yahweh is coming back. Chapter 8, verse 3. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 is a call about what to do because he's coming back. Now, it is certainly true that God has already taken up residence in his people. The Holy Spirit indwells us. We are temples individually and corporately, of the living God even now. But, beloved, that is just part of God's fulfillment of his promise to dwell in our midst. Because the promise of his imminent return continues through all of the New Testament. He's coming back to dwell with us not only spiritually, but physically. Jesus took on a physical body, not just while he was here the first time. He took on a physical body that he has today and that he will have through eternity. And when he returns, he will return bodily, just as he departed bodily. His grave is empty, and ours will be too. He will dwell with his people in the place that he himself will redeem. Chapter 3, verse 9 of Zechariah says that he will remove iniquity from that land in a single day. What land? The place he calls Zion. The place he calls Jerusalem. He will bring his people back to the place where he will dwell with them. Wherever they are now on this earth, he will gather them together to himself to be 
where he is. <laughs> We're going to look a lot at that whole theme. You remember when Jesus in John 14 was leaving and he said, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am you may be also? We're going to talk about what that place is. He will rule over all the nations, not just over Judah. John, uh, Zechariah 14, verse 9. And he will make everything in Jerusalem and Judah holy to the Lord, even the pots and pans. That's the last paragraph of this book. And the one true God, whose name is Yahweh, will accomplish all of these things through a person that he's going to send. We talked in the worship this morning about the one who is sent. He's going to accomplish these things through one that he calls a man, chapter 6, verse 12, that he calls my servant the branch. Chapter 3, verse 8, chapter 6, verse 12. Don't worry, we're going to get to all this. That he calls my shepherd, chapter 13, verse 7. That he calls my companion, chapter 13, verse 7. This is the one whom he says will rebuild the temple of Yahweh. Now, he said Zerubbabel would rebuild the temple of Yahweh. But there's one who's coming, who has all these names, and he's going to rebuild the temple of Yahweh. So that's the short-term and the long-term view. That happens all the time in the prophets. This one, chapter 6, verse 13, will bring both priest and king together on one throne. Huh. Think about that. Servant of God, shepherd, priest, king, companion of God in one person. Who do you think that's talking about? Who had it been among God's people who had failed to fulfill their calling during the period of the kings? Well, let's see. The kings failed miserably. The shepherds failed. That's the priests and the prophets that God sent to shepherd his people. And the people themselves failed. Who will redeem all of those failures? The one whom God presents in this book as the perfect shepherd, the perfect priest, the perfect king, and the perfect man. The companion of Yahweh. When he returns, he will bring about security, protection from enemies, a complete end to conflict. Chapter 8 talks about that. He will bring prosperity and abundance, and he will bring about true contrition and faith in the hearts of all of his people so that they will look upon him whom they have pierced and they will mourn as one mourns over the firstborn. In short, this one who is coming will undo the curse. Just as we saw when we studied the four major Old Testament covenants, we're going to see very, very powerfully in this book that the ultimate focus of all that Zechariah says is the coming of the perfect Davidic king, God's Messiah, Jesus Christ. Does that sound relevant to you? When Jesus was on the road to Emmaus, after he was resurrected, after he had appeared to the disciples, Luke chapter 24 and he encountered a couple of disciples who didn't recognize him in his transfigured state. And they were saying to him, haven't you heard what happened in Jerusalem? 
about the Jesus of Nazareth and how he was killed and people are saying he's raised from the dead and Jesus, you know what Jesus did? says that he, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So how much of the Bible is about Jesus? All of it. All of it. Beloved, if you stick with us through the study of Zechariah, by the time you get through with chapter 14, you'll know exactly what Jesus was talking about when he made that statement. Judah's hope in the days of Zechariah is our hope today. Being part of the Church of Jesus Christ in 21st century America is increasingly taking on a similarity to what it was like to be a Judahite at the time of Zechariah. There is strident and increasing opposition in our culture to everything that has to do with God and certainly to the people who speak out on God's behalf. But it's only for a time and the oppressors are going to lose because our king is coming. And when he does, things are going to change radically, wonderfully, and forever. That does not mean in any way that these promises didn't have immediate significance or relevance to the people to whom they were originally given or that they don't have immediate significance here and now for us. Zechariah was talking to people who had started to build the temple 16 years earlier and then they had been stopped in their tracks by what? By fear of men. Now, through his prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, God had told them that the rebuilding was to resume. And he promised, God promised that Zerubbabel, the present governor, would be the one who would complete that task. Chapter 4, verse 9. They had every reason to believe that once that temple construction was completed, the glory of God would once again inhabit the Holy of Holies as he had in the tabernacle and the temple of Solomon. And God had provided a high priest, Joshua, which Ezra, in Ezra is translated Yeshua. Does that sound familiar? It means God saves, and it's the Hebrew precursor to another name, which is Jesus. I'm not saying Joshua was Jesus. I'm saying he was pointing to Jesus. We'll, we'll talk about that plenty. And that high priest, he was ready to reinstitute the sacrifices and the festivals and the fasts, all that went into the pattern of the corporate worship of God's people. And Darius, the king who had authority on earth to shut this whole thing down, now had given his blessing and his promise of protection for the rebuilding of the temple. God was doing miraculous, amazing things right before the eyes of these returned exiles. And he was clearly working to faithfully fulfill his promises. But along with those promises came a sacred assignment. And this is where the stage setting comes in. A call from God to his covenant people to get things ready for his return. The central exhortation in the book is in the first few verses, and we'll look at that next time. Return to me, says Yahweh of hosts, so that I may return to you. We're going to see as we talk through this, as we examine this book, how that call applied to the people in Zechariah's day and how it applies to us. Return to me 
that I may return to you. We're going to look very hard at the part that we are to be playing right now in the restoration that God has already begun in Jesus Christ. As the church of Jesus Christ, we are here to adorn the gospel of our coming King by our very lives and to be his instruments for populating his kingdom with the souls of men and women and children whose hearts have not yet turned to him. We are called to press forward with those preparations even when the opposition to doing what God requires of us is very, very great. And even when we've seen little progress for a period of time. We are called to see our daily obedience as preparation for his return. We're called to see everything that we do day by day as stage setting, getting things ready for our coming king. If we understand and embrace this calling, it'll keep our focus always forward and upward. It'll keep our hope glued on him. We will not become lukewarm like the church at Laodicea. We will not lose our first love like the church at Ephesus. We will persevere and we will overcome. And when the day of our Lord's return finally does arrive, our entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to us. I hope that we will all become excited about being good stagehands and getting the stage set. Where else are we going to go as we study this book? Lord willing, wherever the book takes us. (laughs) Loving Father, we thank you for the power of your word, for the power of your precious and magnificent promises. We thank you, Lord, for the transcendent reality that you have set before us. You're coming back. Your son will be our king and his throne will be forever. And all things in your creation will be in subjection to you. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess both in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. We ask that you hasten the day, dear Lord, and that until that day comes, You make us good stagehands. We pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.